Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to two guests. This is the first time I've done that, and I'm looking forward to it. The two guests are Steve Sedelnik and Jim Turner. And Steve is a highly accomplished session drummer and music programmer who has worked with a multitude of A-list artists over the course of his storied career. From answering an advert for a drummer needed for Paul Weller in 1983 to opening the Grammys twice with Madonna and having been featured on numerous Hollywood soundtracks, Steve is one of the most in-demand live and studio musicians, having played on many familiar iconic albums and movies. These are movies you and I have all are familiar with, and we'll hear about them later on. Jim is a longtime entertainment industry professional whose 40-plus year career straddles music, film, and TV. After previously working on a session musician with Steve on British multi-million selling artists like Black Bros and Lisa Stanfield, Jim established himself as one of the top commercial music producers for brands such as Pepsi, Esso, Elise, Coca-Cola, and Nike before moving to L.A. to work on film and music projects. He has worked with Guillermo del Toro on Hellboy 2 as well as the Tekken franchise and the Death Race franchise and developed projects for Netflix and HBO. For Jim and Steve, it has been a natural progression from a lifelong personal and creative friendship to a musical partnership. This new creative partnership has been received enthusiastically within the professional community at the highest levels and a number of projects are currently in various stages of production with releases starting in 2024. Welcome, Steve and Jim. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, man. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning. (laughs) So I'm going to start with both of you, but maybe individually you can answer first. I'd like to know, where did you guys start and what are the aha moments that led you into following a career or path that has led you into music initially? Where I grew up in the north of England, it was basically music, football or further education. I tried all three and music was the only thing that I kind of, re- I thought, well, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. My parents weren't happy about it, even though my brother was a musician. It just went on from there, really. I moved to London and started going to auditions. And back in the day, in the early 80s, you could answer adverts and go to various rehearsal rooms and line up. And, you know, it would be like a trial by fire. But it was it was a really good experience. And it doesn't exist so much now. But you've got different mediums like YouTube where people discover different musicians, different types of music and everything. But back in those days, it was just literally everything was word of mouth. So, yeah, I just kind of stumbled into music and just started playing. And a friend of mine who I was at school with was a chemistry student in London. And I went and stayed with him and we started a band and we got signed to a very small label. And I just carried on doing that basically when I was young. I'm sure Jim was the same, right? Yeah, very similar. What was the first instrument you played, Steve? The only one I can play, which is drums. <laughs> <laughs> now, was there a reason you gravitated towards drums, or what was your attraction to drums? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to play guitar or piano properly or anything, but I'm not. It's one of those things you think, one day I'm going to really be good at that. And I even had a bass guitar at one point, but I just never got around to it. It was always work and 
when I got into playing and then I got into programming, it became quite time consuming. I was working more than I had like free time at one point. So I never really developed any other instruments, but it's always good to be able to play everything. Piano, that's the number one, I would say. I would say guitar, but yeah, piano is useful. <laughs> I'm going to ask Jim the same question later, but I'm curious. When you started out playing drums, Steve, did you think this was going to be more of a hobby, a passion, or ultimately lead to a steward career that you have? And is that what you wanted, or did that change over time? No, it was definitely what I wanted. I mean, I loved music from when I was a kid. And like I said, my brother used to play in a band, and I used to follow them. But music was a big part of life at that point for me. But as far as being a professional musician, that was, I didn't even think about that. And even the money, that was not my priority. My priority was actually playing in something that I thought would be cool. You know, it was <laughs> definitely all about the music. It was nothing about business plans or what happened later in your life or whatever. It was just like, right, I want to be in a band with my friends or join a band yeah. and play music. No and plan B, right? No plan B. Now it's a whole different thing, which is probably good, you know, without a doubt. But, you know, people are educated about mental health, what happens if they're not a success, blah, blah, blah. But in those days, that wasn't really like an option. You just forged ahead and see how far you got. How about you, Joe? How did you get started? Almost exactly the same story as Steve. And I think of lots of players of our generation that became successful. Same thing. I come from the north of England as well born in a small town near Manchester and then moved to Manchester. And again, I just decided that music was the thing that really resonated with me. For me, I went to watch a concert one night, which was the Crusaders, if anybody's interested or know who they are, and saw the guy playing saxophone and thought, that is what I want to do. And I just went out the next day, packed my job in, bought a sax and just started practicing. And I literally did that. And then I joined some bands like Steve and we had some publishing deals. We had some small deals on independent labels. One band in particular had a bunch of big labels chasing us, but we never signed that deal. And I guess my journey is a little bit different than Steve in the sense that this is relates actually to your aha moment, I suppose, which was the, that band I'm talking about, which had a lot of label interest. With We went on tour with a band that had had a number one record in America and they'd had a number one record in the UK. I won't name them. They were a big band, but they were about to get dropped by the record label because they couldn't follow it up. And we went on their very first UK tour as a support act. And I remember watching the singer during the concerts and also in the warm-up when they were doing the sound check and thinking, wow, that guy's special. He's really special. He's got something unique about him. And everybody else in our band at the time was just like, no, we don't think so. And our management was like, I don't understand why they got signed in the first place and all this. And I thought, well, I don't really agree with that. And then the band went on to be hugely successful, multi-million platinum selling artists all over the world. And that moment gave me that, you know, I have judgment and these people didn't have that same judgment. And then eventually I decided that the politics of the band were not really for me. And I started doing more and more session work. And that's where I initially went and started working with Steve. We were both playing with a big British band, Bros, as we would say, Bros, as you would say. And when I started working with those people, it was like I'd found my tribe. There was no, this is good music, this is bad music, based on personal preference. There was only professional music. And it was all of certain quality. And nobody was arguing about that. 
there were no arguments. Everybody knew what it was and knew that there's a quality in a piece of pop music or a piece of rock music. And so, yeah, I think Steve and I had also worked on another project together, which was a band called Black, which had big singles like A Wonderful Life, which everybody knows if they saw it, and Swedish Smile. And I kind of joined, actually was a member of the band a little bit after the album came out and Steve had played on the album. So vicariously, we'd worked together in that way. But then from the Bros thing, we did that and then Lisa Stansfield. And we became kind of lifelong friends, I suppose. We've already been in touch. His friends do struggle with Yeah, I've moved <laughs> countries, but he finds me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> at least I found him. Yeah, campaigning back for all those years. We were lucky enough to have pretty good careers and be able to travel. You know, and when it was still quite exciting to go to different countries because you didn't know where you were going or what you were going to see because there's no researching anything and you just turn up on tour somewhere and then you'd ask the concierge, where do we go to eat? (laughs) And that (laughs) would Kind of it, yeah. it was a unique moment. Yeah, time, yeah, it was. Way, yeah, it? and also it was kind of a pure way of working because apart from playing and traveling, there wasn't that much else to do. So with tours, there was a lot of shows because they'd maximized the amount of time that you had, whichever country you went to. And now it's not so much, you know, there's bigger shows and there's less of them, but the crowds are bigger. Whereas back in those days, it was, I wouldn't say they were intimate, but they were a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah a lot smaller. 10,000, 10, 15, yeah. 20,000 people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did stadium, it was like a one-off event. It wasn't normal. So you had to be huge. So. so I'm curious, Jim, you said being in a band versus being in a session. That is quite different. I'm wondering, what's the difference? Because a lot of it's the same artists, right? So what changes? I mean, being not from the music industry, I'm curious, how is it different? Well, actually, it's one of the things that I learned from Steve. I think Steve came to this realization, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think he came to this realization earlier than I did, which is when I started doing the sessions, I'd come from always being in a band, being a band member, being signed with the band. You know, we're all in a group together. We're all traveling around the world and here we go. We're all friends and stuff like that. But I think when you're a session musician, there is a kind of line that maybe is, it might be a blurred line, but it's a line you shouldn't really cross between your professional work and your relationship with the artist. I'm not sure I always walk that line very well, but I think Steve did that much better than I did. You know, maybe you'll disagree. No, I mean, the thing is with music is it's everybody's hobby, right? Everybody's kind of interested in it on whatever level because everything you get, there's music associated with it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to make a living at it and you have to kind of try and make a career out of it. It was a lot less clear in those days, right? Yeah. It was more like, wow, we're doing this, we can't believe it because we're actually (laughs) working and we're not not working. (laughs) So every day was a bonus. That was kind of it, you know. It wasn't much more than that. It was like if it went on for six months or six weeks, it didn't matter. It was just the fact you were working and that was enough. Yeah, it sounds like you guys were getting work for things you just absolutely love doing, which is even better, right? Yeah, don't get me wrong. It's still hard work and there's still a pressure with going in front of 10, 20,000 people, whatever it is, every night, and not making any mistakes. I know? made loads of mistakes. In theory, you're not supposed to be making mistakes, I but just, it's pressure, you know. Yeah, yeah. But actually, you know, sometimes the better way to increase your success rate is to increase your failure, right? And the thing is, I think as long as you learn from them, that's where you guys get better and better and learn. 
So I'm curious, what would you say was a pivotal break or turning point for each of you that really kind of accelerated or put your career into rocket? Well, like you say, back when you read my little CV or whatever, I answered an ad like in this big pop paper in the UK called Smash Hits with Paul Wellows. He was in this band called The Jam and then he started his band The Style Council and it was for one of his artists on his label. And then eventually he produced that album and I played not only drums but percussion on it. And then when we went on tour supporting them, I ended up playing drums for the support band and percussion for his band. And they had a really big, big record in 1985 and we ended up playing at Live Aid and we were the second band on after Status Quo in 1985. So that for me was quite a big I think it was the first time I'd been on like, well, obviously it was like the biggest TV show there's ever been. That was for sure different because I remember the week after that, we traveled to Japan and we stopped to Anchorage because you couldn't fly over Russia at that point. So you had 18 hours and go over that part of Alaska, etc. We went and got some food, I think like a hot dog or something. And the woman recognized me and the drummer <laughs> from Live Aid. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, cool because, you know, yeah. I had a bus pass and a couple of drumsticks before then. So, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. How about you, Jim? I don't know whether it's a single moment. I guess when I'd made the decision that I was really going to try and do session playing at a higher level than just working locally, I'd managed to get myself an agent in London who was mostly doing TV placements and things like that. So one of the gigs they got me was with Whitney Houston and actually Coca-Cola commercial with her and Ridley Scott was directing it. So in retrospect, that was a real... Can I, I just sh- say I've not heard of any of those two people? <laughs> <laughs> so, those unknown, but whatever. Those unknown. Carry on. <laughs> And looking back now, I wish I'd paid more attention, you know, because it was quite a special moment. And after I drove back from London and when I got back, I had a message on my answer machine from the other agent who was probably the biggest music agent in London at the time asking me to come down and meet them. And so word had got around on that set, you know, whatever they thought was great about me, um, they passed on. And then I got a call to go back to London and I went back down to London And eventually I ended up working on that gig with Steve. But before that, when I look back, it was kind of inevitable that I would get something big because there was a few big bands, Sting, and a few big artists that I was in the frame for at the time. I didn't get any of those. But looking back, it was probably inevitable something like that was going to happen because there was a momentum building. And to kind of go back to what Steve was saying there, When we did the big British band, there was a lot of press and there were moments where I would go down to the stage during the show, the front of the stage, and I would play. And there was a lot of pictures of me doing that because my main instrument is saxophone and it's kind of an interesting picture. So that was on all the music magazines across the world, really. And when we went to Australia, they'd been using one of those pictures to promote the tour on these big 40-sheet posters, which I was oblivious to. And then I walked out of the hotel And it was pretty obvious that all of a sudden, everybody in a place you've never been to before knows who you are. And that was a strange moment. I mean, that became a little bit of a problem where I lived in Manchester later on. Were they like sex playing kind of... Sex playing lunatics. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like Jim went and worked for people. I went for auditions as well and didn't get them. 
Yeah. And that was quite common. I went for Terence Trent Derby at one point, didn't get that. Went for AHA, would you believe, at one point, didn't get that. So you just got to kind of carry on. And really, if you're working for somebody, which brings us right around to why we're doing this right now, essentially, if you're working for somebody and you're not either the primary talent or in control, you're always expendable. Nobody's irreplaceable. I mean, you've only got to look at the footballers, right? Like a year ago, it was grief and blah, blah, blah. Now they're back on tour. It is a business. And at the yeah. end of the day, that's what matters. Yeah. It's like that people want to see that, the bands and want to see that music. Yeah. But also it is a business and people do carry on. So well, also I think at that time, there was one big agency that handled most of the touring from a musician's point of view. And there weren't that many musicians on the books, were there? No. You know, so maybe there was 20 or 30 musicians that they had that covered the instruments. Mm. And if you were in that group, it was kind of an elite group, if you want to call it that. But they were the people that did the sessions, that did the live tours, that did the TV appearances. It was always that group. So between us, we covered a lot of ground, I think. And that was kind of a unique period because that doesn't really exist anymore, does it? No. You know, if you want to be a session musician now, I mean, I don't know how you would start. I don't know, really. I want to go back, Jim, for a moment. And maybe, Steve, you might have a similar moment to your aha moment. I think it's very interesting where you said you saw something in that group and nobody else saw it. And then that gave you the confidence that you had judgment. And I think we all kind of go through that in life. At some point, we make decisions where you're kind of going against conventional wisdom or others. And you finally realize, hey, you know, maybe I have that talent in that thing. And how did that really help you and change you from there? And then, Steve, did you also have a similar moment like that in your path? I think for me, it gave me confidence that what I was planning to do had some semblance in being a decent idea, that I did have musical judgment. And that's important if you're going to start pursuing a musical career. And it gave me confidence that I was on the right path. I think later on, I've had other moments where I've been in meetings with people and I think we can all get imposter syndrome at certain points and moments where very, very successful people take your opinions on board and actually act on them. And I think that, again, it's a similar kind of thing. It gives you confidence that what you're saying or what you're doing, it's a validation of your thought process and your talent, if you will. And so that is how I look at things. I'm always trying to learn new things. And I always think, I mean, it took me ages to be able to say comfortably, I'm a professional musician. I never felt comfortable saying that until I was paying my mortgage and everything else and platinum discs on the wall and everything. Okay, well, maybe I am. Maybe I am a professional musician, you know. And then when I became a composer writing music for commercials, again, I didn't feel comfortable saying I am a composer because it sounds so, that's like Mozart does that. <laughs> not me. Not that I would ever be <laughs> ever be anywhere near that. I mean, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. But it just is that imposter syndrome, I suppose. I really never felt comfortable saying I was a composer or professional musician or a producer music producer you know even though we're reasonably good at it <laughs> as history might say <laughs> i think i know what you mean it's like you're living life right but all of a sudden you're reaching these pinnacles and you kind of say so i gotta pitch myself is this really happening is this is really true right yeah. and i mean that's kind of a fun interesting experience but i know what you mean waiting for somebody to turn up and say you're a fraud <laughs> you never did that you never worked on that you never did this you're a fraud <laughs> 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 I can go on now no. 
But yeah, I totally agree. You don't know, especially when it's all happening. You can't really quantify it. You're just like, well, you try, something's working out and you're working with people. And ultimately, you've got to be part of a team as well. You don't get very far if you're very kind of awkward. You've just got to make allowances for everybody's moods or whatever. And you can't turn up, especially if somebody's paying you to be miserable because you have to turn up and just be positive all the time but sometimes you can't be you know obviously but I think when you get to be with a bunch of musicians or whoever whatever your field of work is when you find that you can be yourself and be whatever happens around those other people and then you end up working with them for quite a while I think that's quite a normal thing I think the bottom line is nobody wants to stay on a tour bus for 18 hours or whatever it is with somebody who's a pain in the ass. They can be brilliant players for that one or two hours on stage a night, but if they're a pain in the ass for the other 22 hours, nobody wants to work with them. It's true. Yeah, and I've got to say that I'm not the greatest player or whatever. I mean, I've played with a lot of great people, but I'm not the greatest player. But I would say that part of the reason I got a lot of work was that I kind of just did what was required. I wasn't pushy. And sometimes, maybe to the detriment of my career, it was always about being in the unit rather than me standing out. Yeah, I think that's very important. Obviously, talent is a big part of it. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, you guys are talented, but you know, I teach. And one of the things I tell the students is, look, half the battle in business is getting people to say, do I want to do business with them because they like you? Right. You can be super talented, but if they don't like you, they're not going to do business with you, you know? And I think that's what you guys are saying. I think it actually has made more fun for you guys as well, but that's a big part of it. I think from what I'm hearing you guys, it's you have to be able to work in a team and be able to collaborate and really be likable to work with. Yeah. Be yeah. competent, be accurate. And yeah, every now and again, you get to be special maybe, but most of the time it's just about doing just what's required. And in my ways, I'm the best in my particular price range. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, now that you've had such a storied career and experience, if you were to encounter each of you now, a 21-year-old version of yourself, what advice would you give them knowing what you know now? Keep going. It's going to be all right. Don't marry that girl. (laughs) (laughs) Marry the other girl. (laughs) It's going to be okay. It will work out. Just keep going. I know when I was 21, I was a real dork. And I still am a dork. So, (laughs) you know, when I look at 21-year-olds now, they look cool. They've got, like, really great clothes. They've got a direction, you know, blah, blah. I never had. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was like, okay, I'll go and play. And... But I would say that one thing we did do that I'm happy that we did, that other people didn't do, you know, lots of people, they go on tour, they go out to, because there's an invite to a party every night. They go out, they go to the parties, they get drunk, they sleep in the next morning, getting over the hangover, they get back on the bus and they go to the next gig. But if you look at the pictures of me and Steve from that period, uh, we're at Berlin Zoo, we're at Disneyland, yes, yes. we're always out choking up. Drugs. Free tourism. Free tourism, yeah. I used to say, these gigs are getting in the way of my holiday, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we tried our best to absorb what was going on, I think, at the time, you know, because it's a fairly unique experience. There's not many people get to experience what it's like to go through those moments with a hugely popular band and everything that's involved with that and steve's gone on to do that much more than i have since then with madonna and people like that so i'm curious what are some aha moments when you start working with some of these really big artists that are well known i mean at the end of the day they're real people as well right 
Yeah, I've got a great one. I think we were doing an MTV Awards in 2003, and I was playing with Madonna at that point, but we were doing this thing with Britney Spears, Missy Elliott, and Christina Aguilera. But it was like Metallica were on their System of a Down. It was like, it was a really great show in New York. And just before we were going on, obviously we were like changed, ready to go on. We had our in-ears, blah, blah, blah. And Madonna came up to me and spat in a hanky and wiped something off my face, which is just like <laughs> what my mum had done. <laughs> and then you just realise, you know, she's just another mum. Really? <laughs> I think, yeah, people don't realize that they see celebrities. Everybody's just a real person at the end of the day. So what are some aha moments you've had working with some of these people that are very well known? Maybe they're not the experiences that everybody expects, those big experiences. But for me, anyway, it's the like small incidents that are almost like an out-of-body experience. Like what? Give me an example. Well, playing on stage at Wembley Stadium and the spotlight hitting you. Obviously, you're playing, but it's out of body, and you realize you're in this, you know, 70,000 people or something like that, whatever it was. You still got to concentrate on what you're playing, but it's almost like you're watching from out of your body. I would say another moment is actually not in front of anybody. I was at a celebrity's house who I won't mention. We were all sat around the pool, and Kenny Edwards was there, who people know as Babyface, the Jacksons, the Bodyguard soundtrack, endless Whitney Houston, TLC, you know, endless hit records he's had. And of course, he's there. Everybody wants him to play and sing. He doesn't really want to. So he says, well, okay, what shall I play? So I said, do the Eric Clapton song that you produce, you know, If I Rule the World or whatever it's called. He said, okay, well, I'll play it. You can sing it. So he's playing and I'm singing in front of these world-known famous people. And it is like a weird moment because... You know, Kenny, if you're a producer, he's right up there. You know, he's a benchmark. And meeting Quincy Jones as well was a bit of an odd moment as well. He's woven into the fabric of music history. I met Larry Hagman once at a Madonna concert. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I'm from London. He goes, it's really expensive there, isn't it? And I was like, yep. And I was like, wow. J.R. Ewing thinks it's really expensive in London. <laughs> that, that was definitely one. And I had another one where I was playing with an artist and we were supporting the Food Fighters and we were doing the last song of the set and I just looked over and Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins were at the side of the stage and that's pretty weird because they're like two of my favourite drummers anyway and just to have people like that. There's always one of those moments where yeah. you'll meet somebody or you'll have an experience or you'll be on a TV show with somebody or yeah. you bump into somebody in an airport and you're just like, wow, this is kind of crazy because you've either seen them in your DVD collection or your yeah. CD. <laughs> I once got in a lift with Tom Hanks and Robert De Niro. So I mean, I mean, I'm from Bradford. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So, but things like that happen. Things like that happen. But you have to be in those situations. And I think another thing is like it's really important where you live. If you want to do things, at the moment, I live in a very rural part of the UK. And it's just not as inspiring as it is when you go to London or when you go to obviously Bangkok or when LA. you go to New York or LA. Doing simple things inspire you to do other things. But when you're very remote, and I think it takes a certain person to be able to dig deep and come up with something, you know, and some people like that solitude, but I'm not one of those people. I'm a great believer in dirt. Being with people makes you work a different way. Like even if you're working on headphones, 
the fact you're in a room with somebody else and then you can go and have a cup of tea and just go, oh, you know, I'll play this. And, and it just makes you think a different way. Yeah. So I think working in teams and being with other people that are like-minded is really, really important in whatever you do, yeah. whatever business. We are kind of working like that, even though we're in the same room. Yeah. Steve's got a station over there and he's doing his thing and he'll throw it over to me and I'll do something and I'll throw it back to him. And we're kind of working together, but in isolation. And I think it's important that because when you're doing creative things, it's important that you can try ideas out without feeling embarrassed that it's a bad idea. It takes me a lot of chipping away at the stone to find the statue, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I think what works for you guys is that you guys really like each other, respect it. But more than that, I think you guys help push each other's envelope in different ways. And you keep growing. Because I can tell what has done really well for you. And I think this is something I've noticed with a lot of successful people. You guys are constantly curious and you're looking to learn and evolve. And I think that's part of being creative and just, you know, learning to stretch your envelope because things are always changing and evolving. I can just tell you guys still have that same love for something new and different that you did when you first started out. That's great. That's going to keep you guys young and vibrant and contributing for a long time. So you guys have worked on movies, commercials, all kinds of things. So tell me, how different is it working on all of them? Is there certain common elements that you found to really help you be successful in all those different methods of doing music? I found that music is cool. There's a lot of cool people in the music business. There are some very smart people in the music business. But the reality is it's much smaller money in terms of investment and risk in the music business. When you start working on films, you know, I mean, I've worked on $200 million movies. And when there's $200 million at stake, everybody's a little bit more serious about it. <laughs> and it tends to have, I would say, more cerebral people at the upper echelons. And that filters down into every aspect, of, I would say. Yes, you can have fun, but it's serious stuff with real deadlines. You know, if you don't meet a deadline, then it's not a matter of the album gets delayed by a month or whatever. This is like, the cinemas booked around the world, the streaming deadlines and penalties if you don't meet those deadlines. And so everything is, I would say, is a little bit more serious than music on its own. But in terms of creatively, you know, it's very similar. Everybody's trying to do the best that they can do and they want it to be great. Even cheap movies, you know, I say cheap movies, anything, you know, from one to five million dollars, let's say, Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Everybody's trying to do the best they can within the money they have available and the time they have available to do it. You know, so when everybody looks at a movie and goes, oh, that's terrible or whatever, you know, terrible. you don't know the amount of work and the amount of jobs that have gone into yeah. creating that. Nobody set out to be slapdash about it. It's just that you have a certain Which amount is, of money, a yeah. certain amount of time, and that's the best we can do with the money and the time. Which yeah. is crazy because movies, you're right, like their budgets are huge compared to making a record. But right now, obviously, with Netflix and Amazon and everything that you can stream, and the same goes for music, you know, there's so much content that you can watch anything that you want to watch. And you can just go, oh, yeah, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. And that's like millions and millions of dollars. And you're just going, no, scroll through that. Oh, I don't like him, you know, don't like her, whatever. There's so much competition now. So you've kind of got to stand out above everybody in whatever you're doing because the playing field's a lot larger and you've got to make yourself a little more unique, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's true, particularly in the music end of it, I think. For us, I mean, lots of people can compose and orchestrate because that's an educational process, right? You can go to university and you can go to music school and you can learn how to orchestrate and then you can polish that craft. 
but doing stuff I would say that Steve and I do or maybe Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross and people like that from Nine Inch Nails that do a lot of film stuff, doing what they do, that's not something you can go to college to learn how to do. It's about creating a sensibility and creating a vibe. And those guys I just mentioned are really good at it. And because of the kind of things that we've worked on in the past, it's kind of innate in our upbringing. And it's very difficult to learn how to do that. I get the sense that one of the things that's made you both quite successful is you also have an innate ability to understand human nature. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? How much of that plays into you being better creatively? I mean, I think you know, there's the education part, right? But at some point, I think you guys seem like you're observers. You take in a lot. And as a result, that gets incorporated into your creativity. Yeah, mate, I think everybody's got their own process. I can only speak for myself. Steve's maybe got a different process than me, but I approach it from a kind of academic perspective in the sense that I listen to as much music as I can. It doesn't matter what genre it is. I want to hear what the latest sounds are, the latest trends are and stuff. I listen to a lot of film music. You know, I read books on everything. I try and absorb as much as I can to feel like I'm staying current and that filters through into what I do. I'm not a classically trained composer, but I know what I want something to sound like because I've heard it on, you know, a hundred different things. Everybody's creative process is different. I've got massive curiosity. I'd love to learn new things, you know, and music, film, whatever it is, also other subjects. I think Steve's process is maybe slightly different. Yeah. I'm all about kind of minimalism and less is more everything, like whether it's what I own, the way I make music, I work on a very small system, just still on headphones and things like that. But that's the way I've always worked. So ever since like the late 80s, I've always been at the back of a room on my own, usually. So I've got a different way of approaching it for Jim. But I think that's why it works. If you're doing the same thing, you I wouldn't say you're cancelling each other out, but it doesn't make any sense. So yeah. if you both do different things and then you can do things at different times and develop things, then it makes sense. You know, it's like an equation with a actual proper ending to it, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Steve works a lot faster than I do because of that cerebral process we were just talking about. I apply that to sound and everything. So I'm always looking for something that makes it sound cool and interesting. Sometimes, certainly when I was doing commercials, and you're not afforded that opportunity, you know, they've got to get done quickly. So you've got to be able to create a sound quickly. But when we're doing stuff on our own, I might want to spend more time on it. And Steve pushes me to work quicker, which is good for me, because otherwise I will spend a lot more time on things. The words dry and paint (laughs) spring to mind. No, no, it's good that because I'm like an ideas and I just like to throw it out because usually I'm working for somebody and they want ideas like straight away. That's why you're getting paid is to come up with those ideas. So that's why it can kind of work this way. So Jim's taking the kind of that mantle of taking all the, I wouldn't say rubbish that I come up with, but some of it is, you know, and, and like sifting through it and then getting the good bits and going, right, we can make that work or that will work for this or that will work for that yeah so it's good right so you guys have worked together for many years but i'm sensing something's different this time you guys i think have a master plan to do something a little bit different so tell me more about this collaboration and what you guys are doing and what exciting things we can expect from this collaboration so just to back up a second there steve and i have been doing separate things and then steve called me and he said i've got this band in new york that have asked me to work on some tracks do you want to have a look at them? And he sent me a couple of tracks and I did some stuff on them. And this was when he was in the UK. So I was working in here. Steve was working on his setup in the UK. 
he sent me the tracks so i sent them back and the band seemed to like them so we realized that it, it kind of works and like steve says we complement each other we do different things and so that's how we started working together this time and i think where we see the area of most interest to us as well is the cinematic end of things because whenever we write something whenever we've worked on our own stuff over this recent period of time it always sounds like it should be in a movie it sounds like it should be the theme tune to something or it should be some artist placement so the natural progression to that is to do scoring work and to do sync placements so we're going to do a lot of that we've talked about maybe setting up our own label because I think in this part of the world, this part of the world being Asia, there is a lot of talent that is not getting its chance because of the way the media industry is structured in various countries around Asia. There's a gatekeeping process that means a lot of people have talent, but they're just not getting that guidance. They're not getting that mentorship. They're pushed into certain channels. You know, we look at K-pop. I mean, it's a machine. The K-pop thing is a machine. BTS and Blackpink, they're the outliers, I think. But there is a huge kind of body of artists underneath the tip of the iceberg. But they're all very much the same because they're pushed into that K-pop production machine. And that's okay. Lots of people like that, obviously. But I think we feel there's a huge untapped reservoir of talent and cool music that just never sees the light of day here because the mechanisms don't exist to showcase it. And I think we'd like to have something about that with our history and our sensibilities. I think we could meet good mentors to artists on how to navigate the business and create the best music that they can make. We've got to be doing some of that for sure, setting up the label, doing sync and composition as well as the pop producing that we're doing for this band in New York and other artists. So that's what's coming. We'll see how far we get. <laughs> so Steve, what attracts you about Asia? What's your attraction to Asia? I love it. I love it here. I scuba dive. So I used to go to Phuket and go to Andaman Sea and do that for years. I think mainly it's kind of what Jim just said. It's like the opportunity for giving a lot of talent a different kind of perspective. You know, I've worked on a lot of big records with major artists and I'll work with anybody if I like the song or I like the person. Nothing's exclusive, but it's a lot harder here to get that you know to get a producer that's worked with like the artists that we've worked with and you kind of have to be here to do it and you have to have the right setup and Jim's got studio here and we can work remotely as well so we feel we can offer something that a lot of people can't so they don't have to go to America or go to Europe like you know we can do it here which is, I think, could make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, I think so. That's the hope. I mean, there are good studios here. And from a technical perspective, I think what's not here quite so much, because Asia doesn't have as much of a history of this, is artist development and the willingness to push the envelope in terms of production quality. That's not so prevalent here, even with the big labels, I would say. And I think they recognise that themselves. So, yeah, there's lots of opportunity in this part of the world. And obviously, you guys bring a lot of experience, and that is a big part of the equation, right? It is a lot of experience and knowledge that you've accumulated over the years. And then, of course, the facility. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys are going to come up with. And I think it's going to be exciting. We'll keep you posted. Usually on my podcast, I like to end with this last question. And this is a question for both of you to answer separately. And that is, if you could have lunch or dinner with anyone in your industry, who would it be and why? So many people. I'll do one from music, one from film. Sure. Go on then. Music, Clive Davis. And why? Because he's just been the soundtrack to everybody's lives and he's built successful companies in music several different times, you know, and he's just got an amazing perspective on what makes a hit record. I mean, his history is just untouchable. 
from film, I would say Guillermo del Toro because he's just is always fun. He's like a giant child, giant creative child, brilliant man, and he's always fun to be around. And you can always learn something from being around him. Steve, how about you? My favorite band of all time were the Beastie Boys. If I could ever have my time again, and I would be born in America in New York and be a part of that band. So any one of them I'd love to have lunch with. Film-wise, Robert De Niro, I suppose. Thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to hearing what's coming up from your studio. It's going to be exciting. Thank you so much, Jen. Thanks. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.